This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm here with my collaborator, comrade in arms, Paul Hartfield. Hi, Stephen. Photographer. And we've got a very special guest today, but the Bureau of Lost Culture dedicated to collecting and recollecting, unearthing, extracting lost, half-remembered, forgotten countercultural stories. Now, we have with us a very special guest, America's leading scholar of high strangeness, Eric Davis. Hello, Eric. Hey, good, good to be here. I wish that um, somebody would call me um, London's leading scholar of high strangeness. That's a great uh, title. Yeah, I, I, I was—I actually kind of resisted that. I was like, "Oh, come on, guys!" I mean, I, you know, I'm a little—I'm a—I'm a little more more humble style. But uh, they were like, "No, no, no! It's, Don't it's fight accurate. It. Let's do it." And I'm like, "Okay, here we go." Publishers I haven't been that. doing it for a long time, so. Uh, publishers love that. Now, the reason that we're here is that Eric has published his latest book, High Weirdness with Strange Attractor, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 1970s, an exploration of the emergence of a new psychedelic spirituality in the work of Philip K. Dick, Terence McKenna, and Robert Anton Wilson. Now, we're going to dig in, uh, Eric, uh, to those three authors. But for people who don't know you and don't know your work, just give us a brief bio, would you? Absolutely. I, I, uh, I've been a freelance writer covering counterculture and, and weird stuff for uh, 30 years, you know, really eclectic range of things, but united in many ways by the quality of the, the weird or unusual or counterculture or edgy. And uh, so I've written a number of books. My first book, Technosis, was a kind of cult classic of uh, media studies. It was about technology and the relationship to the religious and mystical and esoteric imagination. And I've always been interested in where popular culture and religion mm. broadly conceived uh, combine. And so that's a, a lot of the, what makes me interested in the counterculture. And your, your website, technosis.com, is really the kind of archive home of that, including your podcast and various other things. Yes, yes. I mean, I have my podcast, Expanding Mind, I've been doing for 10 years. And uh, tons of my writing is on is on my website. So it's really a quite, mm. a, quite a treasure trove for folks interested in that and that kind of stuff. And then I, I got a PhD a few years ago. I decided to, I've always wanted to get a PhD and got a degree in religion from Rice University, working under Jeff Kripal, who, who writes about counterculture stuff and, and uh, you know, UFOs and uh, 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 superheroes and things that most religious scholars don't write about. He's a real character. I'll tell you what, there'd be a lot more people religious if, uh, <laughs> if they were talking about UFOs and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, well, again, it's about religion broadly conceived, including mm. spirituality right. and new age and all that kind of stuff, of magic, things like that. Anyway, so then I, I wrote this dissertation and then transformed it into the uh, to the book uh, we're talking about. I mean, it's, a, it's an epic work, and it's sort of epic ambition in a way to sort of bring you know, all that stuff together, these extraordinary writers, but also that extraordinary times. But I mean, so give us a little pricey of high weirdness, not the publishers. You know, yeah, no, no, no. Back, well, it's, it's probably the easiest to understand, talk about how, how it was, uh, how it started. So I've always, I've been interested in Philip K. Dick since the 1980s when I was handed a copy uh, in a, in a very derelict, uh, you know, deranged, uh, drugged out uh, uh, student co-op in Berkeley, which is a very appropriate place to be living in, uh, in, and to be getting those kind of messages. So I, some guy, hey, you like Philip K. Dick. And I lo fell in love with Philip K. Dick and I've been interested in him for a long time. So when it came to the idea of writing a dissertation, I was like, oh, I'm just going to work on Philip K. Dick. Because in addition to writing this wonderful, paranoid, bizarre, weirdly prophetic, uh, brilliant science fiction, he had this visionary experience. I mean, he had a number of them, but he had an extraordinary mm -hmm. set of them in 1974, beginning in 1974, 
that he called 2374. But it went on for many years, and it kind of obsessed him for the rest of his life. So all of his fiction, including his classic uh, novel, Vallis, were really reflections and refractions of this experience that he had in his attempt to come to terms with it, because it, while on the one hand it kind of resembled a classic mystical experience, in other ways it was totally psychotic, and in other ways it resembled his own fiction mm-hmm. uh, that he'd already been writing about reality breakdowns and, and, and paranoid possibilities. Identity. I mean, obviously the people here are probably most familiar with Blade Runner based on Drundroy's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is a short story in that collection, isn't it? I mean, it's, and actually, it's a fasc- I love Blade Runner, but of course the short story itself is is, is fascinating because it's more about identity than anything else, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a novel, but it's... It, oh, it's it, a novella, it, yeah. it is, uh, yeah. it, it, it gets, uh, you know, it definitely has a different different f- a framework mm. than, than Blade mm. Runner. Um, in, in some ways, other, other films are, are that, that have been made on Dick's, based on Dick's mm. work, are, are a little closer to his kind of uh, metaphys- metaphysical mm. questioning. So there's a mm. kind of philosophical dimension, even though it takes place in these absurdist, uh, amusing, and sometimes quite harrowing and nightmarish. Which worlds. of those, do you want to list those films? Oh, the woof. There's, there's a lot of them. I think the most important ones, you know, uh, would be uh, Total Recall, uh, which is trashy, but, but in some ways excellent. Uh, the, uh, a Scanner Darkly is, mm-hmm. a, is a wonderful film by uh, Richard Linkletter that goes into. I'm a, a Minority Report is a, really based mm-hmm. on a short story and, and includes some really important, uh, you know, Phil Dickian uh, elements. So there's, there's and, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of spirit. Anytime there's a sort of false re, false reality kind of thing, like Truman mm-hmm. Show or Matrix, in some ways we're in kind of Philip, Philip K. Dick land, even if he's not explicitly mm-hmm. uh, evoked as one of the one of the figures there. So, so the reality was, breakdown is a big, big right. trope. Right. So, and he was your, so he was your way in. He was my way in. So he had this great experience. I thought, okay, I'm just going to write about this perfect stuff. I had uh, I had helped edit a book called The Exegesis. So when he uh, had his experience in 1974 and he lived eight more years, he kept a private diary, which is this immense, you know, million word plus metaphysical, paranoid, private, speculative diary. And, and some of it is brilliant and some of it is absolutely pathological. And I was part of the team that brought out a published edition of it, which was about a tenth of the overall work. And it's still this enormous book. Is it readable? Uh, parts of it are. I mean, it's not readable front to, to 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 end. Although that's how I had to read it. But uh, as as a as a kind of book of possibilities, as a book to open to any page, it's a marvel, uh, and, and much of it is really quite brilliant. And if you're into him, then it's it's worth the, the it's worth the chore. So anyway, I had all this material and experience, but just at the, just when I was about to write my 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 uh, PhD, uh, I said, I, you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want to spend three years inside this guy's brain. Like I'm, I'm going to get lost in this matrix of rabbit holes and paranoid possibilities. So I pulled back, and I still wanted to write about it, but I, I realized that there were a, a lot of features of his experience in, in 1974 that resembled other crazy, over-the-top psychedelic or non-psychedelic experiences in, in that in that era. Uh, Dick himself wasn't using psychedelics at this time, and he actually had done them not very much in his life. He was more into speed. And at this point, he was really largely not doing drugs. So his experience was kind of visionary on on the natch. But it resembled a lot of more psychedelic experiences that people were having, you know, quite a number of them. So I started to compare, well, who else is kind of having these kind of weird breakthroughs that combine psychosis, uh, mysticism, science fiction, technology, the occult, you know, all of these different elements are kind of brought together in these very strange experiences, the paranormal. Uh, and I decided to to compare that um, 
his experience with two other crazy experiences from the early 70s. So one is uh, Terrence McKenna, who became famous much later in the 1990s as kind of the the bard of uh, the psychedelic revival of, of, mm. of mushrooms and DMT in particular. Um, I mean, and for people who don't know McKenna, I mean, he... Irish origin, and so bard actually is the word, isn't it? I mean, an incredible storyteller. Mo- mostly, I think, best experienced by listening yes, to and, him. To him, just he'd just sort of sit down, wouldn't he, and just start talking. I mean, um, and you know, occasionally take questions, but I mean, no, he, he would just ex- he would just start. He and, had uh, extraordinary gift of gap. Yeah, you know, and he very, was fascinating very... to listen to, um, and and very convincing. Well, maybe we come back to him. So, so, so a psychedelic bard, really, really? Uh, um, yeah. and and became a kind of teacher, but was resisted being a guru but has become in recent years I think kind of quite influential oh absolutely you know, I mean he helped he, for, for better and for worse he mm-hmm. helped spawn the idea of that something significant was going to happen in 2012 yeah. and he also really popularized I think uh, more than anyone else DMT as some mm-hmm. kind of important molecule mm-hmm. and mushrooms and, and, uh, uh, and mushrooms as well which he helped propagate in the mm-hmm. 1970s by um, publishing a, a guidebook to mm-hmm. how to grow them so he was really part of the whole spread of the mushroom mm-hmm. into the counterculture the psychedelic mushroom the psychedelic mushroom the, yeah. the, the magic mushroom yeah. the psilocybin uh, and uh, But in 1971, he went down mm. to the Colombian jungle with his brother, and they went down there looking for a DMT, particular kind of DMT concoction. Uh, but they stumbled into a, basically a field filled with uh, psilocybe mushrooms. So they started eating the mushrooms, and then they concocted this kind of pseudo-mystical scientific ritual experiment thing, mm. which they called the, the experiment at La Chirera. And they, you know, did the ritual, did the experiment, took, uh, you know, a, a healthy dose. But something more than than ordinary uh, high-dose uh, high trip happened to them. Uh, his brother basically lost it for a number of weeks and was kind of channeling cosmic information. And, you know, it was very weird. And then Terrence had a little bit more sanity left and uh, was sort of interacting with his brother. And, and But he saw a UFO and saw these synchronicities. And, and his story that came out of this very wild uh, experience really was the kind of core of all his later ideas. Mm. So to understand where he comes from, um, you really have to like look at this, which he wrote a book about called True Hallucinations, which is a wonderful read. And he did an audio version even before that, which is even better because his voice is so so marvelous. But again, in that experience, it's the same kind of, it's like kind of psychotic, kind of paranormal, kind of religious, kind of occult, kind of science fictional. There's all of these elements that are weaving together and once again, another version of something like that happens to our, our third person, Robert Anton Wilson, who's probably the least known, uh, though is much you know deserved uh, object of study for people who are into this kind of stuff. Um, he's probably most famous for co-writing a book that uh, came out in 1975, but was written earlier called Illuminatus. And Illuminatus is like a it's a, this immense. A uh, shaggy dog story of a book filled with uh, s- uh, uh, s- satirical conspiracy theories, occult uh, secret societies, drug humor, hippie pornography, lots of satire. It's a it's a silly but brilliant and satirical book about the counterculture, about radical politics, about paranoia and conspiracy theory and sort of using all of this element with a great focus on the Illuminati, you know, who are now the sort of Mm -hmm. major feature of popular culture. And we can blame a good deal of that on Robert Anton Wilson, who helped 
uh, bring in the already existing ideas about the Illuminati that existed in right-wing conspiracy groups going back, you know, mm. really a couple centuries. But he kind of gave them this, like, crazy, wacky, uh, over-the-top glaze. Well, presumably, um, um, David Icke is, is a... You know, the sort of natural love child of Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah, except that they don't get the joke. You know, the thing is, is that Illuminatus <laughs> is filled with, is, is funny. It's filled with, you You can't read it and not see it as a satire. Mm. But at the same time, it kind of seeps into your mind. Uh, mm. And he, it, it's a good example of, a, a, I think, a really important distinction mm. to make be, is between conspiracy theory, which are mm. the, the actual ideas about what these conspiracies are and who's behind mm. them. And, you know, and they're usually delivered with a lot of earnestness and conviction and compare that conspiracy theory to a larger sense of conspiracy culture where people just kind of enjoy this stuff. They find it interesting, fascinating. Mm. They don't believe it necessarily. In fact, a lot of times they don't believe it, but they're kind of into it in a weird way. And that's sort of part of the countercultural imagination is this uh, playing with outlandish ideas mm. that you don't really believe, but you kind of enjoy and they kind, you kind of linger mm. or dance with them a little bit. And so he, Illuminatus really captures and, and, and um, communicates that sensibility. But then in 19, also in 1973, 1974, Wilson is living in Berkeley, you know, and all these guys sort of spent time in Northern California, uh, is living in Berkeley and he's taking a lot of LSD and he's using it to sort of explore uh, how to meta-program your own experience, how to go into a trip and sort of set up a possibility and then have that possibility realized during your experience. So he's doing a lot of positive thinking. He's doing a lot of uh, occult ritual. He's doing sex magic. He's just basically what he calls experimenting with brain change. So he's not really a spiritual seeker. He's not seeking like mystical oneness or uh, the encounter with the gods. He's more experimenting with how the brain constructs reality and in, 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 in to play with the tools through which we can uh, explore really bizarre outlandish realities. But he's still doing it in this kind of secular, playful, experimental way until he kind of goes too far. And he becomes convinced that there are incorporate, you know, uh, non-human intelligences associated with the star system, Sirius, who are communicating to him. And they're communicating through all these synchronicities that are happening in his life and all the books he's reading and conversations he's having. It's all pointing to this tr secret truth that really, there really is a secret behind these conspiracy theories. And so, uh, what what he talks about in, in his next great book, Cosmic Trigger, is basically going into this paranoid worldview and then getting out again. And so I'm tracing that process of how that stuff mm. leads. And it all, all three of these experiences really resonate in really fascinating ways. Right, so you've taken these three characters, authors, kind of, in, in a McKenna's case, and... Was it just them, or did you have to sort of, okay, these are the three that I'm going to look at this theme through, or is there something about these three in particular which actually, no, it is them, It's, the, it's the, they define it in some way? It's a great question. Actually, it, it, I do use that to, to think and, and talk about a broader mm. situation of what happens in the 1970s, what happens to the counterculture in the 1970s when the, the great dream of the 60s, the, the sense of radical transformation, whether it was going to be spiritual or whether it was going to be political or both, uh, is def is not going to happen. That's not happening. It's not going on. And suddenly you're adrift in the 70s. The economy's uh, worse. 
There's an energy crisis. People are worried about pollution and the environment in a new way. Lots of people are kind of still fighting for their own uh, splintered identities. There's a terrorists. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a bummer era, you know, and you can hear it in the music. There's a lot of, you know, sad singer-songwriters as opposed to raucous, you know, and of course there's rock and roll. There's a lot of different kinds of music, but um, it's, a, it's a driven, intense, kind of desperate time in a lot of ways. And... I think that their experiences and the fact that they take place in the early 70s really suggest this. There's still this desire for radical transformation. There's this desire to, to get, get into the reality studio and, and change the rules. But it's no longer attached to concrete social possibilities. So in these in individual minds, people just go as far as they can, which is, you know, it's the same time that people are turning to cults and mm. new religious movements and gurus. It's just that these guys sort of, they stuck true to a certain kind of psychedelic individualism, a kind of solid, a kind of singular exploration of the possibilities of consciousness, but they did it extremely intensely. I think, I mean, that's in, that's in, that's in America much more so. I mean, in, in, in this country, I mean, you know, was, we were talking earlier about the difference between British counterculture and American counterculture. In the 70s, it did go dark and wrong here too. There's the famous line, I think, in With Neil and I, isn't it? I think when the 69's turning into 70 and he says they're selling long-haired wigs in Woolworths. It's like this sort of the sign, you know, the, the, this, this, uh, this psychedelic dream uh, is starting to crack open. And what happened, seems to have happened here is, is that it got more political. I mean, there's, uh, you know, talking to... Uh, Richard Adams about like the foundation of Frestonia. I don't you probably don't know about Frestonia. No, I know about you know, it. Right. So, you know, and all these kind of political things happened. Of course, then people went off into different drugs as well. Cocaine and stuff took over in terms of music and everything changed. But you're saying that in the States is that whereas that darkness also happened and also there's a lot more political activism and, you know, the birth or the development of the ecology movement and green politics and feminism and all that stuff too, these people are kind of, in a way, holding the torch still for that late 60s psychedelic vision. Maybe they've taken it into like a personal uh, the personal transformation rather than societal transformation. Is yeah, that right? I would but say bo both are going on, but they're definitely still holding, holding, that, holding that torch. And that intensity, that intensity, I think, helps a, you know, it, but it also helps us understand what's actually happening in the 70s, not just in terms of the counterculture, but, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, I've been studying the 70s for a long time, and this, was, this book was partly a way just to talk about the 70s, which is an era that I think we don't, we don't quite acknowledge for its significance because it's sort of a bummer. It's kind of hard to, like, f get a story around it because it's very fractured and, uh, and, and diffuse in some ways. But it's really where our modern world, our contemporary world, really begins in the sense that you have the emergence of computer networks. You have the emergence of a consumer economy based on debt where people are, you know, buying their own kind of lifestyles. And it's also the place where, as you mentioned, you can buy the wigs in, in Woolworths. Mm. But what that also means is that, you know, the 60s were happening to, in the countercultural sense, to a relatively small number of people in a relatively small number of places, at least in, just to speak from the United States. But it's in the 70s when all of those when versions of those eth ethics and practices spread into the mainstream. So it's in 1975 that you have the most high school students taking acid and smoking okay. weed and having okay. sex when they're 12 or whatever it is. It, it, it's not in the late 60s. So it, 
even on the one hand, all of this stuff gets commercialized. And indeed, that's part of the theme of the era is that everything can be turned into a lifestyle commodity. You know, you're a new ager, you're a feminist, blah, blah, blah. There's going to be some kind of economy that's going to serve you right. and that we can support that in a, in a kind of diverse, multicultural mm. uh, context. But it also means that these kinds of experiences and the, and the way in which they undermine existing norms mm. is widespread. So it's really not until the 70s that the real kind of woozy meltdown of pre-60s norms really kicks mm. into effect. So there's kind of a society-wide drift, confusion, breakdown that gets sort of recuperated in a, in a variety of ways. And these guys are just like still <laughs> pushing they're, you know, they're keeping the, the pedal to the metal. It's probably the same here, Paul, isn't it? I mean, we talk, we're talking with Jenny Fabian, you know, about mm, the, the, yeah. the, the end of the 60s. The, the, the countercultural scene, it was very small, wasn't it? And she felt the change as well. She felt it sort of like she started to turn into, actually, I need to grow up, I need to mm. move on. And that was in the early 70s when she'd done a bit. And then the rest of society was catching up. And she she stood aside. Yeah, I mean that's really when it, I suppose it's interesting to hear Rick say that because that's here that's when it went kind of nationwide, wasn't it? Mm. Those, some of those values and stuff, wasn't it? Mm. Early seventies, I guess. You know, for me, that's also when I when I grew up. I mean, I was born in, I was born during the summer of love. And you the know, you see, I, I read that in your in your bio, <laughs> you see, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. But I thought much more cool to be be conceived in the summer of love. <laughs> well, uh, under an, we, under we do a, our best. <laughs> we do our under, best. Under a sequoia tree in Golden that, Gate Park. That, that's possible, although I like the sense that like my first breath you know, had within it patchouli oil, you know, Mexican. Please uh, tell me that your Columbus. parents were hippies. They were, the, they were not hippies. Dang! Oh, not hippies. Okay, I'm afraid dang, not. Dang. Not that interesting. But I mean, it's so, but it's, <laughs> yeah. But, but oh yeah, one thing I wanted to say is that mm. that meant growing up in the 70s, mm. that the culture that I was consuming, uh, you know, of course, TV and, you know, some dumb mainstream culture, but when I got my hands on like, horror comics or watched, you know, some you know, cheesy TV shows about witches or whatever, or, or movies that were on the TV, you know, you're kind of absorbing the cultural matrix of the 1970s when all this stuff was kind of spreading and becoming commodity. So there's like, for me, that my interest in the 70s is partly excavating my own first sense of the world. Got it. So... But this also is uh, your thesis to an extent, isn't it? That, that these three writers, thinkers, experimenters, provocateurs, etc., psychedelic provocateurs, they're sort of at the centre of this this development of this kind of new, psych I think you call it psychedelic spirituality, which I don't think we had here. I mm -hmm. mean, or secondhand, if, of course, New Age stuff and happened here and is still happening, but it was really starting there, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I would say that what what they're they're all they're doing this at a certain point when it's not really clear what spirituality is mm. and it's still not really clear and so as i said some people at this time are turning away from drugs and embracing you know freak cheeses or they're embracing cults or gurus uh and some people are saying, no, no, we found something about consciousness, about psychedelics, about how the mind creates the world around uh, paranormal possibilities. And we're not going to go down the religious path. We're going to stay kind of secular, but a kind of secular that is interested in all these things that challenge mainstream rationality, science as it's normally thought about. So they're, they're edge walkers in that way where it's a lot of the phenomena they're interested in are, 
are the kinds of things that religious or spiritual or new age people are into, but they're not new agers. Their attitude is much more skeptical, mm. kind of sarcastic even, mm. uh, uh, and, and more searching and more intellectual in some ways. I mean, all three of them, in addition to being provocateurs and writers and experimenters, are, they're all intellectuals. I like to think of them as kind of garage philosophers. And know, as the, you said, funny yeah. I mean, that's part of it as well. There's that They haven't got that po-faced New Age thing going exactly. on. Exactly. No, They're it's actually... key. It's, that's come up a lot, actually, in, in talking about this book uh, and uh, talking about these characters, is that there's something really special about humor in, all, in this kind of realm in particular because it's so easy for people. You can see it left and right. People get s- serious. They start to believe too much. They fall into what Robert Anton Wilson called a reality tunnel. You know, mm-hmm. where they kind of, they're stuck in their thing and they just sort of lose the plot b- by virtue of their seriousness or their belief that what they're, how they're thinking about things is the truth. Whereas these guys are all, even though they, they sometimes fell into beliefs and that's part of what I talk about is when they get kind of too caught up. For the most part, they kept this line that is much more like a free thinking approach. So it's sort of like, if it's psychedelic spirituality, it's a kind of free-thinking psychedelic spirituality, which I think is a very key element of the counterculture in, in, in distinction to New Age beliefs or new religious movements or guru scenes. is, is a certain way of being in the greater mystery of consciousness, of reality, of the cosmos, of, of gods and magic and all that stuff, and at the same time keeping a kind of humorous open-ended, critical sensibility uh, so, going on. How would they put themselves back? How would they realize mm. they've gone too far? When the- yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the, probably the best, I mean, in a way, they're, 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 they're all a little bit different here. Uh, and um, the, the one who I think is the most instructive for that question is, is Robert Anton Wilson. Um, he has this wonderful phrase, the chapel perilous. And what he means is that if you go down this kind of road, Eventually, you're going to wind up in Chapel Perilous. And Chapel Perilous is the place where you can't go back through the door you walked in through. You're now aware of aspects, or you seem to be aware of aspects of reality that are, that are so outlandish and outside the norm that uh, it, it, it creates a, a, a real crisis in a way, an existential crisis. And he says, there's only two ways out of Chapel Perilous. You either come out an agnostic, someone who once again holds beliefs lightly, accepts that the world is weird and that different things happen and things do not necessarily mean what they say, or you come out a stone-cold paranoid. So this is the place where he got to in his own personal experience and that's narrated in this book, Cosmic Trigger. And he's very clear about how he kind of gets out of this in terms of certain conversations, certain ideas. And in his case, the way he narrates it anyway, a certain kind of choice a decision not to be overwhelmingly mastered by your weirder beliefs and to hold them lightly and return to a kind of open-endedness that acknowledges that things can get very, very weird, but you don't let it sort of take over the way that you organize reality. I mean, how much you can choose that kind of thing. You know, we probably have all known people, if we're in the counterculture, we all know people who go too far, who don't come back. Some people actually have psychotic breaks. Some people just get lost in in deluded ideas it's it's a it's a constant danger of this edge that i'm that i'm articulating what i call in the book that a kind of tightrope walk mm, where mm. you're you're maintaining a certain balance as you go into these weird realms but you're refusing to just give in to 
uh, uh, these sort of overwhelming but it belief systems. But a personal awareness. It's not people around him saying, hold on a minute, come back. That, that, there's that too, actually. One of the main triggers for Wilson, it's partly a personal awareness. Mm. It's partly a, a, a commitment to inquiry and a certain kind of skepticism. But it also was very much about the, the conversations with other people around him. In fact, I think conversations with people who are sharing this kind of path are really key to maintaining it. And he has a very a, one conversation that he talks about in Cosmic Trigger with, with Jacques Vallée, who's a famous UFO researcher, also a very interesting California character. And they... Um, uh, and Valet kind of says, look, you know, you're kind of taking the bait by believing this story. It's not like things aren't weird. He's not saying come back to rationality. He's saying it's even weirder than that. <laughs> so it's more about an embrace of the open-endedness mm. of reality rather than just going, oh, that, that was a bit mad mm. or, you know, that was a delusion. It's, uh, it's, it's a more uh, an embrace of the, the, the multiple faces of reality. Mm. One of the uh, figures that sort of loomed large over these uh, several of these programs, of course, is Sid Barrett. And um, Barrett's an example of what you were talking about a little bit earlier, somebody who did go over the edge and didn't come back. I mean, you know, it, Sid Barrett, you know, the, the original singer of Pink Floyd and stuff, and, uh, you know, generally regarded as being somebody who... A combination of drugs, maybe pre-existing mental conditions, sent him over the edge, and, was, and the people around him weren't able to bring him back. Right? But interesting, of course. Barrett has become a kind of myth, hasn't he? I mean, uh, you know, the myth of Sid Barrett sort of stalks uh, a lot of these counterculture stories because he does seem to sort of sum up that thing about going too far, yeah. as Paul suggested, and actually not being able to bring yourself back. I was wondering when you know what distinguishes these three is that they were writers. Now, there's something about the process of writing, I'm guessing, I mean, you're a writer, and, you know, I've written a bit, bit which is, of course, self-reflective, isn't it? So, the, actually, in writing, you are sort of, you know, in a kind of dialogue with yourself, and I wonder whether that brings in that sort of necessary edge of scepticism, of agnosticism, you know, where you don't quite fall for it all. You're able to look forward or into the void and look backwards and still be in your kitchen, yeah, and, kitchen and, sitting at the table writing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that necessarily goes along because we, we have all the, you know, myriad new age writings of, okay, or whatever. But yeah. this kind of writing mm. where you're, you're, you're amassing different kinds of uh, philosophies, histories, ideas, you know, they're very much idea-driven writers, but they're also telling stories. And yes, they're being reflexive about their own experiences. Um, but there's a fun paradox there, mm. which is that in, in a way, if writing helps save them, from the craziest possibilities of their experiences by the virtue of the fact that they're processing these experiences in writing, mm. the writings themselves become, well, a bit weird, a little bit charged, actually a bit infectious even. And one thing you very much see with readers of these writers, definitely Philip K. Dick, definitely Robert Anton Wilson, McKenna probably a little bit less so in terms of his actual writings, but certainly in terms of his overall worldview, is that people become sort of looped into the story. And without turning them into gurus, because you can't really, because there's not really a, a, a single vision there or, or a claim or like a, some kind of religious dogma, but there's a way in which these books become very animated for certain readers, for certain fans, and I'm definitely one of those right. <clears throat> fans. So it's also the thing that writing, while it helps um, step away from the 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 the, the full on uh, mm. alternative reality view, it also brings that view into texts that we all have access to, and that for some of us anyway have a 
unusual dimension to them that can kind of continues the weird inside writing. Paul, you know, we did the projects about Burroughs in London mm-hmm. and actually he precursor to these guys, obviously, but seemed to be somebody who could sort of uh, see both ways, couldn't he? He, he, he? he wrote The Naked Lunch and he did all that, and yet, what was he doing in London? Yeah, yeah, walking around, being invisible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Shopping in uh, Fortnum and Mason's. The most for, straightforward for... man he'd ever not see, walking <laughs> down the street in Soho, yeah. You know, going into, he was doing all these strange stuff, like his time-space interventions, and he, I don't know if you know this story, but he, if it's successfully closed a cafe down in Soho. Oh, I don't know that out. one. Oh, yeah, he performed... A, they, the, the story, is, according to Miles, is that he, uh, he they served him a, a portion of dodgy cheesecake one day, which uh, caused him some stomach mocha problems. Bar, the mocha bar that used to be around the corner, just from here. And um, as, in revenge, he, he performed a time-space intervention on them, which basically involved going in there with his reel-to-reel tape recorder, recording the soundtrack of the cafe and taking some Polaroids. And then going back in the next day and pre- playing the previous day's soundtrack back, uh, and I don't know if he was displaying his Polaroids at the same time, but um, uh, the cafe closed down a week later. This is the. <laughs> this is That's the great. <laughs> anyway, but but the thing about Burroughs is is that yeah he was lumber invisible. You know he lived in around the corner in St James's, and uh, despite writing all that stuff and the, the stuff about Yaga and you know the psychedelic stuff and his life as a junkie, he was certainly able to just carry on as a sort of rather posh elderly man, you know, uh, 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 and and quite a normal life, isn't it, in some ways? Well, he is a very interesting figure, and I I think he's the most important of the beats for all all three of these guys, actually. Maybe maybe McKenna doesn't doesn't talk about him too much, but Philip K. Dick talks about Burroughs a lot in uh, The Exegesis, and uh, Wilson was definitely influenced by him as well. And I think part of what's interesting about Burroughs in the, in the context we're talking about is that while on the one hand, he was probably the most sophisticated about magic and the occult in, um, of the beats, uh, he really believed it in, in certain ways, the power of, of sigils, the power of signs, the power of ritual actions to, to disrupt reality. But he was profoundly unsupernatural in his approach to these things. They were material mm. processes. They were, they were, they were not particularly enchanted or particularly, you know, romantic. He was not a romantic in any way, and that mixture of kind of um, an interest in magic as a way of of disruption, of disrupting consensus reality, of getting your hands on the ma- machineries of the reality studio. Uh, but with this sort of sensibility where you weren't trying to become a, a wizard or a, a magic or person artist, or a guru even. or even a, right, yeah, or yeah, even yeah, an artist. It wasn't a preconceived yeah. thing. It was just stuff he did, which yeah. was great for us to learn. Yeah. Because I, I saw him as this wizard guy, but he wasn't. He was just a... Yeah, he just somebody did stuff all the time, He just did he? stuff. Yeah. Making collages, yeah. making it, taking his photographs, yeah. recording things. He was just doing stuff, wasn't mm. he? Yeah. yeah, and it has also a lot to do with the certain politics of power where... He recognized that consensus reality is a kind of construct or a story or a symbol system, a set of symbols of sign chains that are there partly to support power. And if you're a countercultural, have that countercultural edge or an anti-authoritarian edge where you're not interested in that, then, then the way then the most important thing about magic is not that it calls up spirits from beyond or the dead or anything like that. The por- what's important about magic is that it disrupts those 
symbol systems that maintain consensus reality. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, all three of the guys I'm talking about, that's kind of partly mm -hmm. the way I approach it. It's very true, particularly for, for Wilson, who was the most uh, politically aware of these three guys. He was very, very aware of magic as a kind of symbol system that is uh, able to disrupt mainstream consensus stories about how things are organized and therefore open up the possibility <clears throat> for something else to happen, something radical, something about freedom, something about transformation. That's uh, that's interesting. And just before we leave Burroughs, though, because, you know, he did manage to transform the real-to-real -real tape recorder into a magical implement, in, didn't he? Um, which, is, <laughs> which was that whole other stream which is in your book, and particularly with maybe Wilson, but and Philip K. Dick is technology. So you've got this new technology come in. Terence McKenna later, of course, has these speculative theories which are connected with the internet and all that sort of stuff and the time wave, that comes a bit later. But they, this tech, new technology thing, computers. Absolutely key. Matrixes, networks, yeah. that's, and with Timothy Leary too, that's all coming in as well, isn't it? Absolutely. In fact, actually, M McKenna, one of the things I discovered doing research, which was wonderful, is that McKenna wrote a book in the late 1960s, He just out of college. It's a kind of a young man book. It's very angry and kind of over the top. Uh, and he never wanted it published, so it's not a av anywhere available, but I was able through the family to, to read it. It's called Crypto Rap. Uh, and as in W R A A P or no R A P. So like ra in the old sense of the rap is some, is like a conversation mm. or, or a rant, okay. or a ramble. You know, a group uh, conversation. And uh, in that book, it actually it's more about media than it is about drugs. Mm. It's more about Marshall McLuhan as a kind of uh, a way of looking at how media is transforming consciousness and that drugs are part of that transformation. What's Marshall McLuhan? Just for Marshall McLuhan is a, is a media theorist who was very popular in the 1960s. I'm trying to figure, like, he's, uh, what's a good analogy today? I'm not really sure who we would, who we would look to. I mean, that's not like Malcolm Gladwell. He's more, he was more, uh, uh, he was very popular, even though he was a, a fuddy-duddy scholar. And he had, this, uh, the, his famous phrase was, the medium is the message being the idea that it's mm -hmm. the structure of the medium, the way particular media are formally as objects that is more important than any content they have. So the, the radio is important because it brings us into an oral universe where suddenly we're, we're listening rather than reading. Um, and that he tried to kind of evoke the, the new characteristics of the electronic media world that was exploding mm -hmm. in the 1950s and especially in the 1960s. And so a lot of heads uh, saw, you know, more intellectual heads saw McLuhan as someone who was, who was kind of describing the psychedelic aspect of media itself. And indeed, uh, sometimes McLuhan talked specifically about a acid as a kind of way of tuning into the new electromagnetic media environment which then shortly thereafter starts to become digital. And all three of these guys are super tapped into that framework. So mm. they're not back to the landers. They're not mm. resisting new technology. They're all interested in seeing how technology reshapes consciousness, the possibilities of consciousness, the possibilities of culture. Uh, and they're not necessarily utopian about it, um, but they definitely see these transformations. Well, fact, they're coming. quite dystopian. I mean, in Philip K. Dick, well, you know, in Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it's a dystopian vision of the future, isn't it? Where uh, the androids, the robots, the replicants are, are developing their own consciousness and stuff. But it's it's definitely not a utopian vision at all. So, I mean, Terence McKenna was a bit more utopian about it in some ways, wasn't he? he? With his visions of, well, 
couldn't have been utopian if he regarded 2012 as a sort of endpoint, I suppose. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just he he thought that that history was was evolving and transforming, mm. and that it would reach a kind of final mm. point. Mm. Um, and whether or not, I mean, it's not utopian in the sense of like creating a happy society where everybody is fulfilled and and in mm. balance. It's more like he saw history as as having this kind of forward moving momentum, mm. and that the tr- the the rapid transformations in technologies that we see now, and the sense of reality itself being kind of disrupted and. Uh, constantly accelerating, which is continues to be our experience today, that all of that is kind of a foreshock of this final moment, at which point everything becomes a kind of galactic starship or we mm. re-enter galactic civilization or some <laughs> other science fictional kind of possibility. So while it is progressive, it's not exactly utopian in the sense of building a, a human society that's going to work for mm. work for uh, work for everyone. I mean, he uh, if you don't know uh, Paul. Mm. McKenna, I think the big thing that let him down in a way was he had this theory mm. that uh, the time wave, that the singularity, that events were going to conspire in some way, and that 2012 was going to be if not the end times. So he had this transformation point, and like many sort of prophecies, I mean, it's always dangerous, isn't it, prophesying some event like that because when it comes and goes and nothing's happened, then suddenly you're sort of flung into this kind of uh, world of being another Nostradamus or whatever, or anybody else who's got yeah. some speculative theories. So, but it was based on sort of pseudo-maths as well, isn't it, I suppose? And yeah, it, it, was, it, it was a kooky idea. I mean, that's, what, that's an example in the book of, of when people sort of fall off this tightrope and they get a crazy idea and then they hold on to it and they, they defend it against uh, legitimate criticisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he really kind of developed this construct and sort of, you know, lucky slash unlucky for him, he died young mm-hmm. in, in, in the year 2000. So he wasn't around to see the, the sort of failure of this idea that nothing's particularly magical happened on that date. But, you know, there's another aspect of like his, his general account of, acceleration mm. of the breakdown of society of of the the intensification of novelty which is one of the ways he talked mm. about the end of end of history would become more and more novel uh does you know have a certain allegorical punch uh and continues to do mm. so so there's a way in which there is a prophetic dimension it's just that it's important not to not to literalize it and that's really in a lot of ways what i'm doing here is taking these crazy wacky outlandish experiences and taking them, trying to take them very seriously, but not take them literally, mm. which right. is what right. how people often blow it is they right. they think they're true and then they go into it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. But let's see how they work. Let's see what they're saying about everything else that's happening then and now. And I think the just to circle back to the book and because it's it's seated to a large extent in California in the sort of first half of the seventies. Mm. Now I, from from. British point of view, I don't know about you, Paul, but I've got a very sort of romantic view of, I wasn't there, obviously, it was way before a time, but it was like California in the early 70s. It just, in my imagination, it seems like this kind of, in a way, like a sort of fairyland and, you know, up, the, up Topanga Canyon and, you know, and all this stuff happening. Was it really like that or was it just a... Well, I think actually... Why was it there? If, it, if, it, if there was a fairyland era in California, it was more the 1950s and especially the early 1960s, before it became popularized, before the summer of love was mediated through corporate media and and consumer culture and all of that. So the the, the California of uh, Kerouac's uh, 
Desolation Angels and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was the 1950s, so it was still kind of a bummer. But the thing about California is that it was very inexpensive and an extremely pleasant place to live. You know, people came back from the war. They had enough money through the, you know, the war act so they could, you know, eke out a living, you know, be able to get some money, go go be, go to a college for a little while. But people could survive on, a, on very, very little money in a warm place that had a history already of crazy religious ideas, mm. uh, health fads, um, and a kind of art of life that wasn't based on sort of New York art culture with, you know, seriousness and trying to be like a European, uh, have that kind of European gravitas, but instead where the life is art and you just, and the enjoyment of life, the, bo- the bohemian lifestyle is itself part of art. And you see that in like the, the, the journey of the beats from the East mm. Coast to the West Coast and how the West Coast kind of transformed their visions and made them in some ways more religious. There was a lot of Buddhism on the West Coast. So it was a really wonderful, pretty open-ended place in which one could live a pretty free life for not a lot of cash. Mm. Uh, and that was also the environment where uh, you know people were experimenting with LSD and it really becomes the first kind of acid culture. Uh, in the 1950s when acid kind of leaks out of university labs or clinical offices and goes into private psychiatric research and then eventually into the counterculture. So, you know, Kesey and Ginsburg are both in, uh, uh, you know, the Bay Area when they first try LSD and kind of go, whoa, this, this stuff could be fun. And, you know, Leary's doing it on the East Coast too. It's not like a, it's only about the California. But in California, instead of having the kind of Harvard stamp of, you know, kind of serious authority, whatever. In, in the West Coast, we have the Merry Pranksters who are just Mike. like, hey, let's just make a party that doesn't have any meaning because it's absolutely meaningful. And, Despite people with orange jokes. You know, it's, and they're taking beatnik stuff, and mm. but it's not popularized mm. yet. It's just starting to. And so all there, it's a combination of, of many, mm. many features that make California what it is. And I think by the early 70s, you know, the same kind of heavy heaviness that's about the decade is also having happening in California that yes Laurel Canyon was a groovy place where there was a lot of uh you know suddenly very wealthy uh relatively young people with lots of drugs around and you know lots of uh sexual opportunities so everything can get fun and also deeply unraveled very quickly mm. so i think a lot of people also got lost in the 70s in a, in a way uh uh, that was, you know, that was that was uh, that was challenging, but still, it was a, a place you could live very inexpensively, and there was a, a way to kind of maintain yourself in a bohemian lifestyle that was uh, self-sustainable. In some and so you, and all three, so Anson Wilson, Philip K. Dick, and McKenna, are they ba- broadly based in California for this during this yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean. Uh, 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 Wilson lived there from the early 70s and spent most of the rest of his life there. He spent some time in Ireland. Dick lived his whole life in, in California, first in Northern California, and then he moved to uh, Southern California to Orange County by the time he had this experience in 1974. And, uh, and McKenna went to school in, at UC Berkeley. He came from Colorado, but he, he and his brother lived in the mm. Bay Area and, and lived off and on there for uh, mm. the rest of his life. He spent a lot of time in Hawaii as well. So they're all very much uh, supping that kind of mm. particular California mix of technology and futurism and hedonism and uh, back to the land, 
I mean, it's, it's a very contradictory place, but a lot of those contradictions are not only what goes into these stories, but they're part of what may, makes our current, you know, reality because mm. they went into Silicon Valley and they mm. would go into right. Hollywood and, right. you know, and for, for better and, and very much for worse, some of that California ideology is now kind of the global environment we live in. You know, the, the yoga studio on every corner is, has more to do with California than it does probably with any other place, even though now these things are globalized. Coffee culture, as we were discussing earlier. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely a drug, a drug culture West as well, Coast. you know, yeah, skunk, yeah. skunk bud. Mm. It's interesting because uh, I was thinking, you know, the, there's that wonderful um, scene at the end of The Graduate with um, when they're taking off on the bus to who knows where, and of course in Simon Garfunkel's song, America. It's just slightly haunted in that song, isn't it? But it's the, it is this kind of vision of young America heading west, and that wonderful, I guess, yeah, kind of Shangri-La, whether it was really like that or not, in a way it was irrelevant. It was propelling people to go west, wasn't it, into this kind of new world of all those things that you mentioned, drugs, sex, technology, art, literature, yeah. coffee, <laughs> all mixed up together. It was a pretty potent brew, wasn't it? And yeah, then, it, was a, it was a very imaginative place, but it's got mm. both, like anything that's more imagination than, than or more utopia mm. than, than reality, it, it, the flip side comes up. Mm. Uh, um, also, Christopher Isherwood, a, a mm. British writer who lived, in, in, lived and died in California, has this great line where he says, uh, California is a is a tragic land like all promised lands. Mm. And it's also the case that of all the cities in the world, the one that has been represented in terms of apocalypse uh, by far is Los Angeles. Like Los Angeles is the great apocalyptic city, the, the city of the end, of disaster, of fire, of breakdown. And it's not that, I mean, that's partly based on realities of, of, of Los Angeles, but it's also an imaginative fact that ca while California is, you know, endless summer, the sun blazing, the, ha the day is happy, we're, you know, nude and bronzed and enjoying the fruits of life, spiritual and hedonistic, it's also the sunset. Mm. It's also where we hit the edge of the West, where it breaks down and falls into the dark. So it's it's also a dark, very dark place, and it's not as that's sort of the more esoteric side of California. The outside, the obvious side, is this happy story, this sort of Shangri-La. But the, it's not that the reality of it is darker. It's that that whole imagination also has this more tragic, paranoid, lost, and even kind of satanic side. And that's sort of the secret heart of, of, in a way, like the California mythos. So you get the Charles Manson. You get the Charles Manson. You Mansons. get the, well, I'm not, the Altamonts. You know, the they're, Altamonts. they're part of the same, the same yeah. tale. Yeah, in a you've, way. Had, you've got the Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam War going on at the same time, which is, is maybe far away, but it's kind of bringing this darkness in, isn't it? And well, if you look at, if you look at a, like take, take Apocalypse Now, just mm. as, a, as a kind of countercultural Vietnam film, is that in many ways, Apocalypse Now is as much about California as it is about right. the Vietnam War. You have the surfer from California, you have Acid, you see Charles Manson, you have the Playboy Empire, which by that time is in California. It's very much a kind of meditation on mm. the sort of the, that dark, violent exoticism that's, that's also part of the California dream. In the book, so this new psychedelic spirituality, let's call it that sort of broad term, it's quite interesting for us because... We didn't really have that here, did we? It never that that bit of the counter American counterculture didn't really come over here. We've not had very many cults. Have we 
Paul, not that I'm familiar with. <laughs> not well, we've been trying to join a cult. We've been trying to join a cult for ages, but yeah. you can't find one. We didn't get cults. We, we we didn't really get that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking there's no writers that I'm aware of, British writers, certainly British writers living here, working here, that anything like those three at all. Um, I mean, more recently you've had people possibly, um, but... Not to us. They just didn't produce, and I don't know whether why that is, or, or or whether we're a more cynical bunch, or just haven't got this sort of scope of imagination, or just that the the, the conditions weren't so. Such. Well, I, I would say, I would I would push back on that a little bit. Um, one aspect of the psychedelic spirituality is paganism, is mm-hmm. is the occult, uh, particularly in a kind of ritual sense. Mm. So well, I'm going to pause you there because actually, my the point I was going to make actually was that I was wondering we 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 have got a history of. The occult. We've got a very old history. I mean, paganism is a huge word, obviously, but you know, in the British culture, in the British psyche, you know, back to pre-Roman times, to prehistoric times, there's been this 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 whole stream of let's call it you know pagan, pagan beliefs, Wicca, witchcraft. Uh, but you know, this this is ongoing through the 20th century. You've got artists like Osmond Spare, you know, and uh, you've got Crowley, 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 whatever you call him, and you know, all those people as well. But there wasn't. An American equivalent of that, I'm thinking. But these people, these three writers, in a sense, have brought in, synthesized something new, which, is that right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it gets complicated because by the time that these guys are around, uh, tradi- occult traditions and pagan traditions from the UK have entered into un- okay. the United States. Okay. So there are, there are traditional Wiccan groups mm-hmm. that are basing themselves on Gardnerian or Alexandrian Wicca that are in the United States. At the same time, there's a native emergence of a, a kind of different tone, which we could call maybe pag- neo-paganism, a new kind of paganism where people were no longer basing it on some idea of a tradition that comes from Europe. Instead, they're kind of making it up as they go along. And I talk about that in term- mm. terms of Robert Anton Wilson, because he was hanging out around with a lot of these kind of pagans who were like, we can do ritual, we can invoke gods, we can invoke the horn god, but we're not going to say that we did it because we got a tradition that goes back for hundreds of years. We're just doing it because we can do it. And right. that's kind of this countercultural, even postmodern sense that we can kind of make things up as we go along. But uh, Wilson was very important in the, in the spread of, of Crowley in a lot of ways. Mm, he was okay. fascinated by Crowley. Uh, a lot of the magic that he did was Crowley-based. But he did it in a very kind of s- uh, skeptical way for the most part. Um, but he was definitely part of a certain kind of transformation of, of occultism that emphasized this kind of postmodern sense that we're sort of doing mm. it on as we do it, using our own energies, making things up as we go, but they have real effects. It's not just BS. Mm. It's like these things have, have effects. And then that, Robert Anton Wilson's approach to the occult, in terms comes back to the UK and is a very important influence, argue, certainly one of the most important influences on the emergence of chaos magic. Mm-hmm. Because chaos magic in many ways is defined by a, an embrace of the contingency of the symbols. It's like it's not about some tradition. It's not even about, you know, Uncle Al and the and Thalema and the OTO. We can use those tools, but we can make them up. Mm. And we can do it in a countercultural way. We can do it in a punk rock way. We can do it in a feral way. And that energy, and if you talk, you know, if you follow, you know, Phil Hine and Peter Carroll, whatever, they're very influenced by 
Robert Anton Wilson and his approach in Illuminatus and in Cosmic mm-hmm. Trigger and his later books. So there's kind of more of a, a, of a loop, of a loop going, on, going yeah. on. I just don't think those writers are anywhere near as kind of, uh, maybe just anywhere near as popular, I suppose. Maybe that's what it comes down to or influential in that way. Uh, um, I mean, with, and there's a, the, because the occult thing here and the pagan thing, which is still going on, of course it is, and you know, in recent years it's been growing, but it, it, it didn't have that kind of cultural transformation you know, or, or translate into other works of culture the way that Philip K. Dick did, for instance. You know, of course, Terence McKenna's—you can tell his Irish uh, 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 antecedents, can't you? I mean, he's like, he's like a—you can imagine him in the Middle Ages, sort of doing his thing, can't you? Yeah, and he was—he was definitely uh, friends with Fraser Clark and the mm. whole Megatropolis mm. scene. My impression of the British counterculture is that, um, in just in general, uh, British modern culture is is more. Uh, trend base in the sense mm-hmm. that it comes and goes more quickly mm-hmm. so you have like you know like so the time of megatropolis in the early 1990s there's a huge amount of psychedelia mm-hmm. in in popular co- or edge popular mm-hmm. culture popular counterculture but then it by the you know by the end of the 90s it sort of disappeared and it doesn't or whatever or some other point and then it comes back a little bit and then it goes down and comes back in the states it's more like you get a sort of cultural current going mm-hmm. and it just doesn't really stop you have the grateful mm-hmm. dead the Grateful Dead never stops. It still hasn't stopped. Mm. It's still there's those deadhead kinds of people and surfers and punk rockers or whatever. It doesn't vary as much. It more just kind of multiplies into these multiple streams. But I think that the the media culture and the and the uh, the centrality of London and the quickness and wit of of uh, culture in in the UK makes for more quick transformation. So acid is, becomes popular, then it's not popular anymore. You can't That's, get it anywhere. <laughs> then it comes back again, and then it's you know it becomes there's another mm-hmm. peak. Uh, so there's more of a sense of volatility mm-hmm. around. But also, I think these, it's these it's, it's it, the countercultural stuff has been stronger here in terms of often in terms of music. So for instance, you talk about the nineties. I mean that whole rave thing which developed here. You know, and it's still playing out, isn't it? You know, but, but we were talking earlier about you know the people gathering in large numbers out of sight of the authorities. Uh, um, you know, that that began in was it, when did rave culture begin? I'm not sure. Not, the late eighties, eighties or something. Yeah, yeah. Late nineteen eighties. Yeah. Yeah. you get the and, orbital parties. And of course, punk. You know, I mean, um, punk itself was this kind of countercultural eruption. You know, talking to Barry Kane mm. about 1977. You know, this very it was a very short time and a, uh, and and a very, very small, small number of people and maybe this is what you're saying and it, bang it's gone but the ramifications of it were sort of still living out but different kind of uh, uh, a different kind of bunch of people than uh, Philip K. Dick and Terence McKenna and Robert Antonson I, just I think can't... the Brits take on aspects as well they don't keep it mm. a solid unit they take on a bit of that a bit of this and it sort of gets watered down really quick maybe yeah. maybe that's the difference it gets chewed up, doesn't it? Yeah. I suppose, and, yeah. and spat out. I mean, and um, we never had a. Have we ever had a Charles Manson? Have we ever had a? Have we ever had the, the Moonies? I mean, we we never done that stuff so much, have we? Really? Yeah. No. I mean, there were, there were. I mean, there were definitely British cult, cults or people mm. who are into some of these global cult movements. You know, the hard Christians mm. or whatever. There were there were equivalents here, but I think you're right that uh, there weren't this, the the kind of intense. Uh, guru-like figures, mm. or if they were, they were on a much l- smaller basis. Put it this way: if on Tottenham Court Road for many years, maybe they're still there. I don't know. I mean, that's <laughs> well, it's the Scientologists. The Scientologists. They've got a little shot from. But I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's not Tom Cruise. It's not. It's sort of <laughs> right, rather right, tragic. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a sure, sort of it's sure. a shot from. It's rather tragic. Now, I must mention actually, uh, is because I spend quite a bit of time there these days. I don't know whether. Uh, uh, 
Eric's come across this as we're coming to the end, um, is Findhorn. Now, I spent quite a bit of my time in Findhorn in nice. Scotland. Now, for people who don't know about Findhorn, Paul does because I'm always talking about it, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's in it's northern Scotland and it's like a bit of California from the early 1970s, transplanted to the uh, the barren shores of northern Scotland, a bit of a fairyland actually mm-hmm. itself. Now, it, it, this is a bit for me of the culture that you're talking about, which did come here and has lasted through all that time. It's quite different now than it was set up. Now, I came across the Fintorn Foundation when I was a very young, when my sister, who older sister, who was a hippie, uh, she had a book in the house. And when I'd read abs- absolutely everything else, I picked up uh, this book. And on the front of the book, it had a picture of a giant cabbage. Uh, and when I delved in, um, it talked about this place on the northern coast of Scotland where they were growing giant vegetables by means of communicating with the local nature spirits. Now, I remember when I was, kid, I was absolutely fascinated by this. And then, of course, I must mention this quickly because it's a great work of counterculture in the film My Dinner with Andre, a work of genius, in my opinion. Andre, one of the two uh, characters in the films, talks about um, uh, American, very He's from New York, but he seemed like a Californian. Uh, uh, about uh, going to Findhorn, this strange place on the north coast of Scotland. That's right. uh, and it's still there. It's the University of Light is there. There's a, a wonderful eco-village there. You can join your commune with your angels and do all that sort of stuff. And have you been there, Eric? No, I've always wanted to go. You know, I'll, I'll, right, well, if you, if, you, if you come up, you can come in there. We don't actually live in the foundation, but you can come and stay with us down there. In Old Findhorn. There's three Findhorns, you see. There's, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, there's Old Findhorn, which is the fishing village. Okay. There's uh, the Findhorn Foundation, which is the bit of California stuck on the north yeah. coast of Scotland, with an excellent delicatessen. Uh, and then the third Findhorn is the, is the Air Force Base, where the nuclear bombers set off from. All next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, so you get three for the price of one. Oh, amazing, that. amazing. But we have come to the end of High Weirdness with Eric Davis. Eric, thank you. That's absolutely fascinating stuff. And gigantic subjects. I don't know how you managed to squeeze it between the pages of, of a strange attractive book, but you sort of did. Yes, it's, uh, ob- obsession and uh, <laughs> lots of caffeine. Uh. <laughs> no drugs, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, technosis with a G is dot com is your website and the book High Weirdness Drugs, Esoteric and Visionary Experience in the 70s aren't strange track to know alright see you down the road thank you cheers Eric bye guys you've been listening to the Bureau of Lost Culture you can check us out bureauoflostculture.com we'll be back next time with more lost half forgotten or barely remembered counter cultural stories 